Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. Jeremy has been leading us through the book of 1 Corinthians, this, this letter that Paul wrote to the Christians who were living in the city of Corinth. And in this letter that Paul, Paul's answering their many questions on how do I do the Christian life? How do, I, how do I make this thing practically work in my everyday life? And how do we, how do we make this work in worship? And, and, and today we come to a subject in the letter that I bet every one of you have questions about. It's the, it's the subject of the resurrection. And I should mention, I mean, there's so much richness in this chapter, but it's a long one, okay? It's 58 verses. And uh, to keep us from being here till 3 o'clock today uh, and missing that wonderful Texans game, uh, I'm not going to go through verse by verse. I'm going to go through concept by concept so we can kind of catch the highlights of this, okay? But I encourage you to read the chapter in its entirety. And a little background here in case you haven't been here through most of the pastor's series. Paul planted this church in Corinth when he was on his second missionary journey. He stayed there about 18 months evangelizing, discipling those that he encountered. And then he left and he went on to Ephesus. And it didn't take long after his departure that things went south for the church in Corinth in a hurry. And in the case of today's question, chapter 15, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe something happened in the church that would, uh, that would serve as a catalyst for conversation about resurrection, maybe, maybe a death, maybe someone passed away, and they started to have questions like, well, what happens? I mean, well, I'm not so sure. I, I, are, are they really, you know, where did they go? Uh, when did that happen? Uh, how did it happen? Why was there so much confusion about this idea of, of, of resurrection in the Corinthian church? You and I don't seem to have necessarily as much question about it, or do we? See, back in there, they lived in a Greek culture 2,000 years ago. The Greeks abhorred the idea of a resurrection. Do you remember the time when Paul was in Athens, just a few miles from Corinth, preaching at Mars Hill? Do you remember that? And part of his message there was about the resurrection of the dead, and they laughed at him. He thought, that's bizarre. I mean, you're off your nut, Paul. What are you talking about, the resurrection? The body? The body would, would resurrect? No. The Greeks thought and taught that the body was just a tomb, in a sense, for the spirit. And at death, the spirit was liberated from the body. And so why would you ever want to be shackled and imprisoned again in this, in this tomb of flesh? And this has to do with Plato, and while Jeremy could certainly explain this better than I can with one, you know, half his brain tied behind his back. Let me give a go at it, okay? Plato, the philosopher, the Greek philosopher, lived about 400 years before this time of Paul, and he taught that the material world, this fleshly world, and all that we see and can do at touch and, and smell and taste, that it is imperfect and that only the invisible spiritual world is perfect, and then there were some early church leaders, early church fathers, who took up the ideas of Plato around 200, 300 AD, and they tried to read them into the Bible. And they made the Bible appear to be condemning the physical, 
material world. And it's a, it's a real trick because honestly, you can't do that with scripture. It's, it's, that's not the way scripture reads out. But um, for instance, God looked at the world on the sixth day of creation, right? He looked at all that he had made. And what did he say? It is? Yeah, and it's very good on, on day six, right? He approved of his whole creation, all of it, all of it, the, the food that we eat, the plants, the water, the animals. It's good and made for God, made by God for good purposes. But then sin came into the world. And it's not that sin made those things bad or evil. It's that we fell as human beings and started to misuse and idolize these things. And so the teaching of Scripture is not that we will be delivered from a material world and material bodies, but ultimately we will live as resurrected beings in a resurrected universe for all eternity. We'll enjoy the goodness of God in the material realm just as we do in the spiritual realm. In fact, those two realms will be brought together forever in the eternal incarnate Christ on the new earth. That's going to be a great day. So Corinth had this Greek culture that, that just kind of encompassed all that they believed about resurrection. But, but Corinth was also a, Ro a Roman province. And the Romans, well, they didn't believe in resurrection either. You remember when Paul stood in Caesarea and he preached to Festus, a Roman procurator. He talked about the resurrection from the dead and Festus interrupted him and said, Paul, your much learning has made you mad. Again, that's, that's, a, that's a crazy man's idea, Paul, that, that, that there's going to be a resurrection. And to top that, there was a whole sect of Judaism that didn't believe in resurrection either. They were called the Sadducees. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the body, and that's why they were sad, you see. Um, it's an old one. It gets worse. They were materialists. They didn't believe in angels or spirits, and they, they, they one time came to Jesus with a trick hypothetical question. They said, uh, teacher, you know, this, um, this man died. He left behind a widow, no children. Uh, then, you know, so the brother, by Old Testament law, the brother's supposed to marry the widow. So the brother comes along, he marries her, and then he dies again, no children. So brother number three steps up, you know, to the plate, and he marries her, and then he dies, and then it goes on and on and on until she had had seven husbands, all brothers, and they all died. You'd think they'd have gotten wise to her after a while. I mean, maybe it's not so safe being married to this woman. But, but the Sadducees raised this hypothetical question to show Jesus up in public, to show the absurdity of the resurrection. And they asked the question, which man, O oh teacher, which man will be her husband? You have seven to choose from. And Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures, which by the way, testify, the Old Testament scriptures clearly testify to a resurrection, a bodily resurrection. You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or, he says, the power of God. Because obviously God is powerful enough to do this. It's no harder for God to resurrect a dead body any more than it was for him to create life in the first place. So there was confusion in Corinth. There's a lot of he said, she said, well, for instance, in verse 12, Paul says, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? 
So like most of these controversies that Paul has addressed in the previous chapters, it's a question of some influencing the whole. Did you catch that? He said, some have preached that there is. Some teach that there's no. Some believe some. Sometimes some is just you and your brother-in-law. You know what I'm saying? It's just a small group trying to influence the whole. And Paul says, we, we need to deal with this. He takes them back to the basics. And so with all that in mind, let's look at 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 1. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. And that's, that's the gospel. That's it. That is the gospel. You may have heard me when I baptized uh, before. That's the verse I go to. That's, that's the verse I quote when I'm baptizing someone. This is, this is what we, Paul says, we have received. This is what we've received. It's what we've taken our stand on. Beloved, this and this alone unites us. Do you get that? The gospel, the gospel, this and this alone unites us. You might be a six-day literal creationist, or you might not. You might believe all the spiritual gifts are in play today, or you might be, as Jeremy described it a few weeks ago, a secessionist. You might be a northerner or a southerner. You might be a pre-millennialist or a post-millennialist. You might be a Republican or a Democrat. You might be an Astro or a Philly. You might be Facebook or you might be TikTok. You might be black or white or brown or thin or fat or tall or short or blonde or brunette or redheaded. Your hair might have turned gray or it might have turned loose. Paul doesn't care. The gospel, beloved, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel is what unites us. It's what we stand on. It's what we stand for. It's what we sing about, live out, preach, and pray, and witness to the gospel. It saves us. It keeps us. It rebukes us. It corrects us. It trains us in righteousness. It empowers us. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And here, Paul calls it first importance. Amen? And then Paul says to the Corinthians, hey, don't just take my word for it. Look in verse 5 through 8. He says, well, after he was raised and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the 12. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. And, and by Paul's main argument here was that there were many eyewitnesses to the resurrection, some of whom were still alive at the time Paul is writing this. In essence, he's saying, you don't believe me? Yeah, go, go see Peter. Go see Jesus' brother James. I mean, he would know if his brother had resurrected or not, right? 
Go see some of those 500 that he appeared to all at once. Sure, some of them have died, but, but most are still alive, and they are excited to talk about it. And then Paul answers their question about the resurrection by painting a very dark picture of what it would be like to live in a world without resurrection. What if Jesus hadn't risen from the dead? Look at verse 13. He writes, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people to be pitied. So if the resurrection is not true, Paul is saying there's all these pillars of the faith that, that uphold the Christian faith and they crumble to dust. Good Friday becomes the true Black Friday if Jesus is not raised. If there is some other explanation for the empty tomb, then number one, not even Christ is raised. And this is the first and most obvious consequence. But beloved, this is nuclear fallout. If Jesus has not been raised, Paul's first argument is if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ himself is not risen. He's reminding us that Jesus was a human being too. And if human beings are not raised from the dead, then it follows Christ was not raised either because he was one, just like me and you. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then Christ's body, I don't know, was eaten by dogs or taken by thieves or secretly removed by Jesus' disciples. Oh, there's got to be some naturalistic explanation for the claim by hundreds to have seen the risen Lord all at the same time. And of course, that's a huge step of faith as well, that, that 500 individuals would have the same hallucination all at the same time. If Christ has not been raised, he says, preaching the gospel is useless. The good news is rendered no news. Actually, it's, it's very bad news. For apart from the resurrection, Jesus has not conquered suffering or sin or death. You know, as the, I like to quote the late great theologian Barney Fife. He, he delighted to tell crowds gathered in the streets of Mayberry, move along, move along, there's nothing to see here. There's no good news here. If Jesus has not risen from the grave, then we might as well just all go home now. Thirdly, if Christ not be raised, faith in Christ is futile. I mean, faith in a corpse buried somewhere in the Middle East will not save anyone. It will redeem no one. If, if Christ did not rise from the dead, Hebrews 11 would better be dubbed the hall of fools than the hall of faith. I've heard people, well-meaning people, I've even heard pastors say, well, even, even if Christianity is not true, you know, at least when you die, we die comforted. I mean, we lived a good life, you know, the best life we could have lived. I think if Paul had heard that, he would have quoted the book of Deuteronomy and just simply said, bull. <laughs> Paul could not conceive 
of what it would be like to live in a world without resurrection. The Christian life is only the best life if it's based on truth. Let me say that again. The Christian life is only the best life if it's based on truth. Paul doesn't give us any quarter here. He doesn't humor us or give us any kind of an out. Our faith in Christ is futile if Jesus not be raised. If the grave is not empty, every witness to the resurrection and all preachers of the resurrection are deluded liars. I've been called deluded before. I guess I qualify halfway already. To deny the resurrection is to make liars of the apostles and of every gospel preacher to follow in their wake. He's saying they're not simply mistaken. They are peddling a whopper of a myth. And it follows that Jesus too then is a liar because Jesus himself said, I am the resurrection and the life. So for someone to say, you know, I really don't believe Jesus rose from the dead, but I believe he was a good teacher, a nice moral being, that's ridiculous. How can he be a good teacher if he failed on his main teaching point that he's the resurrection and the life when there is no resurrection and no life? If the tomb is empty, Christianity is a fairy tale. Uh, Scripture is nothing but an outdated volume of pointless history commingled with superstition and myth. And on top of that, missions and evangelism are a colossal waste of time, energy, and money. Take all the shoeboxes back, folks. There's no reason for that if there is no risen Lord. You get it, right? If Jesus is not raised, all of humanity remains captive to sin. Paul's words become a damning sentence for the guilty. The wages of sin is death. If Jesus not be raised, our world remains captive to sin, still enslaved in death. If Jesus not be raised, everyone who died is in hell right now, for eternity. There remains no sacrifice for sins, Paul writes, if Christ is not raised. This means that every human being would face the full, unmediated wrath of God for all eternity. And finally, if Jesus not be raised, Christians are fools. We are the most foolish people on the planet. Paul puts it this way, if Christ be not raised, then we are of most men to be pitied indeed. This is why the world, is, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, where Jeremy started us many weeks ago, this is why the world sees the cross of Christ as foolishness. If, if any part of the gospel is not true, then we will spend our days pursuing a God who will not benefit us beyond the grave, and the skeptics around us will indeed have the last laugh. So then in the following verses, so Paul is laying out this argument for the, for the resurrection. In the following verses, Paul again affirms Christ has indeed been raised from the dead and he has made our resurrection both necessary and inevitable. Christ's resurrection demands our resurrection. Otherwise, death wasn't really defeated. And then in verse 29 to 34, Paul is stating his case using rhetorical questions. And in verse 29 is one that many of you may wonder about. Uh, you, uh, you may wonder this, this reference to being baptized for the dead. 
I could spend some time here. I have studied it. I have some things to say about it. But honestly, that little verse is not a critical component to Paul's argument for the resurrection. It's a component of it, but it's not one of the main ones. So I'm going to leave it alone. So tomorrow morning when our pastor is back in the office, you feel free to call Jeremy and just say, I've got a question or two about verse 29. We love you, pastor. We're praying for you, especially me tomorrow morning. In verse 35, Paul begins to talk about our bodily resurrection. He says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish, he says. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But, but God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Skip to verse 42. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Time Magazine did a survey several years ago. The results said that of people, of Americans who believe in a resurrection of the dead, two-thirds believe they will not have bodies after the resurrection. Two-thirds. But see, that's what a resurrection is, beloved. I mean, if we didn't have bodies, we wouldn't be resurrected, right? So Paul understood God's creation, and he reflects on nature as he explains. He compares a person's dying and being buried to the planting of a seed buried in the ground where it germinates. And he compares the resurrection body with the new plant that springs up. So what's up with this? A couple things, I think. First, it's not possible to tell from the appearance of a seed exactly what the plant will look like when it's grown. I mean, I'm, I'm not much of a gardener, but a person with no gardening experience could look at a tiny tomato seed and never dream that it would become a tall green plant with yellow blossoms that would eventually yield red fruit. In the same way, we cannot look at this present body, this seed, and know exactly what the resurrection body will look like. But secondly, and I think this is kind of more the main teaching here, death and resurrection are a transition to a higher life, a higher realm. And at the resurrection, your body will be raised. This thing, this seed that you've got with you right now will be raised to be imperishable. You will never die again. You will not contract diseases. You will not grow weaker. You will have been raised to have power and strength, and you will have a spiritual body. Now, that sounds like an oxymoron, maybe. Two, two thoughts going on there, but I think too many of us miss this. Your, your body will be reunited with your spirit the way it was supposed to be in the beginning. I, I think too many Christians miss this. Too many believers that I know think you're going to be a ghost. You're going to be some, you know, I don't know, Casper or something floating around in, in heaven and, and on the new earth someday. I think when people ask about heaven, what they're really asking is, will my individuality survive my death? 
You know, when I get there, up there, wherever it is, am I going to know? Am I going to be known? Are they going to recognize me? Am I going to recognize them? Consider for a moment the risen Christ. After his death and resurrection, Jesus appeared to his disciples. What did he say? He said, look at my hands and my feet, right? It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. His closest friends recognized Jesus in his glorified body. He looked like the Jesus they had known before his death, and it was a physical body. Jesus called people in heaven by their earthly name, including people like Lazarus, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. A name denotes a distinct individuality, a distinct identity. The fact that people in heaven can be called by the same name they had on earth demonstrates they remain in some way the same people. In heaven, you will see your loved ones, and you will recognize them, but they will be without the diseased parts, without the deformed parts, without sin, without pride, without rebellion, and you will recognize them. You will be able to call them out by name because distinctiveness, beloved, is God's creation, not Satan's. We say that again, distinctiveness is a creation of God, not Satan. What makes us unique, God given to us, will survive. In fact, I believe much of our uniqueness may be uncovered for the very first time. Again, these ideas from Plato creep into the church, right? Plato would say our souls merely occupy our bodies like a hermit crab uh, inhabits a seashell. And our souls will just naturally go and live in a disembodied state for eternity. But the Bible teaches that your body doesn't just house the real you. Your body is as much a part of the real you as your spirit is. We, we tend to break everything up by, you know, spirit, soul, and body. That's really more of a, a Platonic idea. In Hebrew thought, they would just say, you are a nephesh. A nephesh is, that's the Hebrew word for soul. And they would say, you are a living soul. All that that you call body, soul, and spirit, it's one thing. It is, you are a living soul. You are a nephesh. And so, what did Job say at least a thousand years before Christ was born? He said, he said, Job, it says, Job rejoiced that in his flesh he would see God. After all the suffering, after all the trials, at the end of his life, when it's all said and done and it's all over, he, in his flesh he would see God. When we die, it isn't that our real self goes to the present heaven and our fake self goes to the grave. It's that part of us goes to the present heaven and part of us goes to the grave to await our bodily resurrection. We will never be all that God intended for us to be until body and spirit are fully united and joined together in resurrection. I like the way Tim Keller puts it. If Jesus rose from the dead, 
then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything he said? And then Paul closes this section of his letter with the language of victory. Look in verse 50. He says, I declare to you, brother and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Skip down to 54. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Little girl cuddled up on her grandfather's lap when she asked him, Grandpa, what does a frog say? The doting grandfather looks at her and he smiles and he says, ribbit, ribbit. And immediately the little girl just jumps off his lap and she starts running around in the den and she's shouting, saying, we're going to Disneyland, we're going to Disneyland. And grandma comes running out of the kitchen, what, what's going on? What, what's, what's, what's happening, what, what, what did you say? The little girl said even louder, she said, well, you said we could all go to Disneyland when grandpa croaks. You know, for some people, death is an enemy, but for some people, death is a friend. And the truth is, beloved, we're all going to croak. Unless the Lord Jesus returns in your lifetime, you're going to croak. I love the way our pastor emeritus, Greg Wallace, used to say it. Death is fatal 100% of the time. I've never forgotten that. That's absolutely right. So, so what's all this perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable? What he's saying is our future that you will have someday requires our victory. Our physical bodies are not suited for the future kingdom. It, it won't do. Your flesh and blood, the way it stands now, can't inherit the kingdom of God without being redeemed and resurrected. You, think of it this way. You and I are moving, and the place we're moving to requires some special equipment. If you want to go into outer space, you can't go just like this, can you? You've got you to put the, the, whole, the whole space suit on and that helmet and lock it in and the oxygen tank and all that kind of stuff. You've got to have special equipment to make it in space. You want to go deep sea diving? Sure, but you've got to have special equipment. Why? Because your flesh and blood, the way it is, is not equipped to handle going into the depths of the ocean. Special realms require special equipment. And our current bodies are subject to death and decay. How can these bodies ever be suited for a new earth? Paul's answer, resurrection. One day, your physical body will have that victory. You'll get your special equipment. There will be a change. There'll be a transformation in our, because our perishable bodies must take on an imperishable form. When Paul says the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory, that's from Isaiah. He's quoting yet another Old Testament source. See, the, the Old Testament is littered with references to the resurrection. The Old Testament pro prophets predicted the day that death would die. And look in verse 55, this little, this little poem, this little song here. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? 
The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, when, when insects, when some insects bite people, they leave their stinger embedded in the flesh, don't they? And when they leave their stinger embedded in the flesh, the insect will die because they're robbed of their sting, their, their, their ability to defend themselves in a sense, and they will naturally and very quickly die after that. And in a very real sense, beloved, death stung itself to death when it bit Jesus. Amen? It emptied all of its venom, all of its poison into him. And now the king of terrors is robbed of his terror. Now death is defanged. And when death is defanged, guess what happens? Now death is your friend. But you're not going to Disneyland. You're going somewhere far, far greater. Isn't that what Paul wrote in Philippians 1, what Paul lived out? He said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Death is nothing to fear anymore. And it becomes a friend. It's World Series time. I, years ago, had the opportunity to interview a guy named Jim Sundberg. Probably doesn't ring a bell to a lot of you, but he was an all-star catcher for the Rangers for many years, and then he ended up his career with the Kansas City Royals in time to play on their 1985 World Series team. That was the famous Heartland Series, where the Royals, Kansas City, played against the St. Louis Cardinals. The series went all the way to seven games, everybody's on edge, who's going to win, who's going to be the hero, who's going to be the GOAT. In game seven, I don't know if you remember this, the Royals' bats exploded. By the fifth inning, they were winning 11 to nothing. And Jim said they started celebrating. They knew they were going to win. They just knew it. They were giggling, running up into the locker room to celebrate during those last four innings. He said, we couldn't help ourselves. They knew it was in the bag. And then Jim says this. He says, we knew we had an adversary. We knew we still had to play another four innings. We knew our enemy would be looking for cracks, and we couldn't let our guard down. We still had to play the game. We still had to keep our nose to the grindstone for four more innings. But, oh, how differently you live when you know victory is yours, when it's in the bag. How then do we live knowing victory is in the bag? Paul closes out this long chapter with the final verse, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's easy sometimes to feel like it's in vain, isn't it? Father and a mother spend 18 years raising a child, pouring their life into her, and then she's killed in a car accident. Feels like it's all been in vain. 
A businessman works and toils day and night building a business, and then floodwaters come and destroy it and, 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 and try as he might. He doesn't have the capital. He doesn't have the supply chain. He doesn't have the connections to build it back. And it feels like it's all been in vain. Man fights against cancer and goes through the regimen of chemo and radiation. It's, it's so hard. It's so arduous. But the, the doctors speak of promise. And then, and then he dies anyway. Feels like it's all been in vain. A woman fights for her marriage. She stays up late nights praying and crying. She seeks the Lord daily for her refuge, her protection, her healing. But she ends up in divorce court. And it feels like it's all been in vain. Paul is reflecting on all that he's taught in the previous 57 verses, the truth of the resurrection. He says, therefore, all those 57 verses, the resurrection, therefore, in light of the resurrection, since God has achieved through Christ a great victory over death, be steadfast. Be standing firm, unshakable, not blown around by every wind of doctrine or set up and down by your own circumstances, but give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. He's saying when circumstances and situations become very difficult and, and you're tempted to move or shift your hope of the gospel onto something else, I don't know what it would be for you. Money, fame, a relationship you know you shouldn't have. I, I don't know. He says, don't do it. You be unchanging. You be unflinching. You be unwavering. Stand firm. Don't move away from the hope of the gospel, but rather abound in the work of the Lord. What does that mean? It means do lots of it. What does that mean? Get in the flow. Get in the flow of the work of the Lord. Serve at the fall festival. Jump into upward basketball. Come to the men's weekend. Pack a box. Abound in the work of the Lord. What's the work of the Lord? It's not just being a pastor or a missionary or a Sunday school teacher or a deacon. In the book of Colossians, Paul says, whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, right? The work of the Lord can include changing a diaper, hammering a nail, cooking a meal, giving someone your time, packing a shoebox. When you do these things in the name of Jesus, beloved, you are abounding in his work. It's not in vain. God sees. God knows. You just stand firm and give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.